Tēnā koutou, no mai, haida mai, welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tame. Today, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, COVID, co-governance and the cost of living crisis. What is the point in a low unemployment rate if people with jobs can't afford to live? Then a world-renowned polling expert tells us about a new group of voters causing a big shift in modern politics. They're wealthy by virtue of their profession and they own assets. And what does tinoranga tiratanga actually mean in practice? A Māori legal expert tells us why she thinks New Zealand still has a long way to go. We do have a society that hasn't grown enough to recognise um, that we are not a minority, that we are not one of a number of groups, that we have a particular status by virtue of being mana whenua. We'll have that interview for you shortly. But first, the Prime Minister. This is a trying moment. Inflation is at a three-decade high. COVID is killing dozens of New Zealanders every week. And the government is trying to push through an ambitious programme of reforms before next year's election. Jacinda Ardern agreed to two interviews with Q&A this year. This is our first for 2022. We get 20 minutes. And I began by asking the Prime Minister about the causes of the cost of living crisis. What responsibility do you and your government take for New Zealand's inflation? Well, the responsibility that we have is to help New Zealanders get through it. Uh, and that's where you'll see that we've been so squarely focused on where we can take that pressure off, taking it off. That's what the fuel uh, reductions by taking off 25 cents of excise, making that direct impact at the pump has come in, half price public transport, uh, and of course the cost of living payment which comes in from the 1st of August. All of those designed to ease the pressure through these coming months as we expect inflation to come away. But my question is what responsibility do you take for the inflation we are experiencing right now? For yeah. causing the inflation, like I say, there are myriad international factors as well, but what responsibility do you take? And look, this is where, you know, I am, of course, happy to take very honest reflection on what could have reached us to this point. But when I look uh, at the fact that we are in such company, as in, you know, whether you're looking at Asian economies or economies within uh, Europe uh, or the United States, Canada, Australia, we are all having this experience. And so that's where you look for those common factors. And the common factors are so often international. The fact that we are all recovering from COVID at the same time, you're seeing a lot of demand in the system, we're seeing those supply chain constraints, we're seeing the fact that goods are not moving around the world as easily as they previously have. You see at the same time, uh, of course, the impact of the war in Ukraine and the impact that's having on energy markets. So as I say, we of course canvas and look at what are the levers we have to reduce those impacts for New Zealanders. Very much causal factors global, our response domestic. But I still want to focus a little bit more on the decisions you've made here because your answer doesn't quite uh, address my question. So even without all oh, of the COVID relief... It might be because relief, we're simply um, disagreeing with the premise well, well, of no, it. No, okay, OK, if we strip out the COVID relief, yeah. since 2018, your government's core spending has increased on average almost 11% every year. It was your government's decision to expand the Reserve Bank's remit. So I want to know oh. what responsibility do you take for the inflation we're experiencing Let's right break now. this down then a little bit. When you look at the increase in spending, and of course, as you've said, COVID driving a lot of that need for additional if you strip spending. Out that, if you strip out that spending, even, since, just let me finish, sorry, since 2018, your core government spending without the COVID relief has increased 11% and on if average I may, every year. Of course, the way to look at core crown spending is relative to GDP. And when you look at that... Does GDP growth uh, match, match uh, 11% every again, year? If I, if I could just finish my answer here. As a percentage of GDP, and of course, when you look at this period of time, relative, for instance, comparable periods like the GFC, then you see that we're in a relatively similar position in terms of that core crown spending. Coming back to the question you've raised, around whether or not one of the causal factors is the fact that in New Zealand we have a dual remit for the Reserve uh, for the reserve Bank. So we're interested in inflation and we've also said we're interested in employment because, of course, it does matter to us as a Labour government that we have people in the dignity of work. Now, we see a number of other countries, both with dual mandates and without them, having similar experiences. So, again, I think it's overly simplistic to say that's a causal factor. And I'll let the Reserve Bank speak for themselves as to whether they 
they consider it too, but I've seen them rebuff that suggestion. What is the point in a low unemployment rate if people with jobs can't afford to live? Oh, and of course, this is why we're talking about a dual remit. We do want to make sure that we have, you know, as a nation, the Reserve Bank, yes, who is independent, but with an eye to inflation, but also with an eye to jobs. But if I may, let's look at the counterfactual there as well. It does matter whether or not people are in employment. Imagine a scenario, which is the scenario that was predicted as we came into this COVID period, where many forecast New Zealand would have employment, unemployment at 10% or more. So yes, global inflation, we have a tough period, but we also predict that it will come away and we are well placed to recover because there are so many other elements of our economy that are strong. You're making a $350 payment to approximately yep. 2 million New Zealanders mm -hmm. who qualify. Do you accept that will make inflation worse? So the, the issue that we have there, of course, is, you know, do we do nothing through this period where we have to accept that times are very difficult for New Zealanders? Or do we seek to find a solution that can ease the pressure but have as little impact as possible on inflation but itself? will it have an impact on inflation? So the advice that we got from Treasury was the fact that it was time-limited and targeted would lessen any potential impact on inflation. Compare that to alternative measures like tax cuts, not so, because it's less targeted, uh, less time-bound. Some of your measures are indeed targeted, like, like, this, um, like this relief payment, mm -hmm. but some aren't. And I look at something like the winter energy payment. There are now 80% of New Zealanders who will be either receiving the winter energy payment or the cost of living payment to support them through this period. Why wouldn't you target something like the winter energy payment to people who only need it? You're giving it to all superannuitants, for example. You're giving the fuel excise tax cut to everyone. Well, let's, let's break those down. So you're right. Taken as a whole, uh, the winter energy payment, which only cuts, into, uh, cuts in during the winter period, but does go to all those on government benefits, but also those who are, on, uh, who are our superannuitants. That cuts in every year through winter. You're right. But, but, but the not cost all super of living payments need it, right? Well, look, you know, the, the question I would have here is though, for the most part, is it something that's highly beneficial to this group who for the most part often are either not working or very shortly tend well, to move out of our employment market. Is, is it inflationary? And should the government be spending tens or hundreds of millions of dollars supporting people who don't need it at a time when inflation is <clears> at So roughly over the entire period that it's paid, the winter energy payment $700 for a couple of, over the course of the winter period. And we've had it in since we became government. We put it in place. Fuel excise tax. If I, if I just how much may, would that, how, how just, much does that cost? If I just may very briefly, on the winter energy payment, I cannot look past the fact that those who are in receipt of it, it is one of the things that I continuously have people raise with me, that it makes a marked difference. Our older New Zealanders turn on their heaters because of it. So I do, I absolutely stand by I'm it. not suggesting no one should have it. All I'm suggesting is that by having much more targeted approach when it comes to things like the fuel excise tax and the winter energy payment, you might be able to save hundreds of millions of dollars in support. Yeah, well, look here, I would say the alternative is to do none of those things and we didn't think that the was The alternative acceptable. is to be targeted well, in the question Which you of, just see it as really valuable. Yeah, and look, for the winter energy payment, it is targeted. And for the cost of living payment, it is targeted to those on 70000 or less, our low- and middle-income earners. If I may, on the, on the excise, because you've rightly raised that question, because it is it is something that is reaching everyone. Uh, that is, Millionaires, though, billionaires receiving That it? is, of course, though, because alternatively, when it comes to transport costs, very hard to simply say that if we just target it, for instance, to a individual low-income driver, how do, you, how do you do that? Someone who is reliant on that form of transport for their work, for childcare, what have you. What we also know is that fuel costs knock on to other parts of the cost of living. If it's costing more to transport goods and services, that has a knock-on. So the universal element there right. pays dividends. Let me ask a couple of last questions then on inflation. I don't want to get into the rule-it-in, rule-it-out game. I'm sure you don't either. <laughs> but if inflation continues to hurt... Will you consider making additional support payments next oh, year? Oh, here I would just say you've, you've seen our willingness to do that because, for instance, we had the family tax credit, which we did at the beginning of the year. We then moved on fuel excise. Yeah. Then we saw that we were predicting the rates continue and we moved on the cost of living payment. So all I'm going to say there is you'll yes. see that we've tried to be agile yeah. to the circumstances we see and we will continue to just see what impacts these are having on New Zealanders and do what we can. We've got a way to go, though, as well on getting the food costs down, which is another big project for us. Is there any policy or reform that you will consider delaying or scrapping 
to help fight inflation? Well, here I would argue that those areas where you've had the opposition uh, suggest wrongly, I would say, uh, that investment has potentially been inflationary. Healthcare, the idea that we would, for instance, uh, reduce the amount that we put it, we've put into healthcare. What about the no. TVNZ merger, for example? In terms, so the $350 million. Again, here there's just an assumption that spending, just spending, is in and of itself inflationary. It very much depends on where that investment is going. And so Treasury has also been very clear on that. I mean, you are focusing on supporting people through inflation, but you also have a role in fighting inflation. And at the moment, the government's plan appears to be to stick with a record spend from the last budget and give $350 to 2 million New Zealanders. A significant portion of which... Uh, was simply uh, the uh, increase uh, required in order to keep the services we have going. And so here, the challenge is the counter-narrative, I would say, the opposition coming at us and saying that uh, their response would be to see a reduction in investment. That is a reduction in education, health care, law and order, very much where those significant investments have been about maintaining and growing services New Zealand rely on, and I would counter uh, questionable whether or not it would have impact. After the break, co-governance. I ask the Prime Minister, is it democratic? Hoki Maiti, we welcome back. Three Waters has become one of the most contentious reforms of this government's agenda. And the Māori co-governance structure embedded within the proposals continues to attract criticism from those who claim the arrangement is anti-democratic. Democracy has changed. We're in a consensus-type democracy now. We're not in a majority anymore. Do you know who said those words? I wouldn't, I wouldn't, well, I've said many things over five years, so you. I wouldn't want to it's, necessarily it's not, it's not, it's, it's paint myself you. into a situation of it, it didn't the, sound it, like that. It is your Māori development minister. Willie Jackson says, democracy has changed, we're in a consensus-type democracy now, we're not in a majority anymore. Do you agree with that? Well, I would argue that consensus and majority, aren't we driving therefore for the same things? And of course the emphasis being here is not in any way questioning the importance of democracy in that proposition either. He's saying it's a consensus-type democracy, well, not I a majority-type democracy. Well, again, he's also... Democracy is democracy, Jack. That's, again, not undervaluing the role that individuals have to have their voice expressed, their voice recorded, and ensure that it has influence. If this is an argument somehow uh, that the things that we are doing are not continuing to drive towards bringing people together in our democracy to drive consensus... That's something I stand by. So is the governance structure for the regional representative groups under Three Water strictly a one-person, one-vote democracy? Well, uh, the idea that any governance board, uh, where actually most of the time they do work to consensus, uh, if you're arguing here that this is giving Māori veto rights, I would argue That's against that. That's not what that. I'm arguing. I'm, I'm asking if it's a one-person, one-vote democracy. The way those boards are structured at the moment... Yes, I do. if you're suggesting that we are undermining democracy... That's not what I'm suggesting. Well, I'm asking if it's... it's no, no, no. It's a, no, it is an important question. You've just said democracy is democracy. Yes. And, and, and by most people's definition of democracy, one person, one vote. So I want to know that under those regional representative groups, if you and I as Pākehā people have the same level of representation guaranteed as Māori people. Oh, well, again, this is where I would argue this is such an overly simplistic response here to what is existing. It's actually a very simple question that well, you could answer. Jack, here, this is where I'd argue we have had this model of running entities for some time. The Waikato River Authority structure, a number of different council structures. Not when it comes to if the I delivery may, of public services, though. Th those are quite different. If I may, though, the reason I'm arguing it's simplistic is because the ownership of these entities sits with local bodies and government. So it is not changing the ownership structures. It is not changing any issues It's not changing around the ownership, but it is changing the representation. It's over and it's an important it's, distinction. Well, no, here I... Again, this if, is where If I'm, everyone has ownership of these assets... Why isn't everyone represented in the same way when it comes to those Well, borders? actually, local government maintain the ownership. They are the ones with the public share. I'm not share. asking about the ownership. I'm asking about the representation on those boards. And with these regional representative boards, yes, we have mana whenua represented and local government represented. But the ownership rights continue to sit with local government and with those local councils. You still haven't answered that. Well, I think it's, again, because I, I don't know that your question really is getting to the heart of the issue here. 
Many people believe that what is happening simply by the representation on these groups, which essentially are trying to draw together those across the region who of course have an interest in the good governance of water, to come together, Manu Whenua and local government, to, if I may, set the statement of intent and appoint the board who run the bodies day to day. The ownership sits with local I understand. people. I, I'm not asking about ownership, I'm asking about representation and that's the what this comes down to. I when it comes down to the representation on these boards, the truth is the structure at the moment, some would argue, gives Māori disproportionate power. That, well, that's, that's the and argument what I, that The make. reason I'm coming back to ownership is for most people, power sits with ownership mm. and the power, ownership sits with local government. Let's talk about COVID. For two years, you've said science would dictate our COVID response. We're in the midst of a massive surge. And all the experts have called for mask mandates in schools, ventilation standards, and a coherent mitigation strategy. With double-digit deaths every day, why aren't you taking that advice? Well, here I would push back on that assumption that we haven't. You know, when it came, I'll take one example. Uh, mask requirements in schools. Uh, here, we were very open-minded. Our message to our experts was, tell us what the best move is here in this phase of pandemic management. They went out into uh, education and health, sought the advice of experts, um, uh, those who work across both areas, and came back with a very strong advice that, yes, mask use in schools is advisable and is what we would want to be pushing for, but that we should allow schools to determine how they implement their own mask policies. It's an application of leadership. After two years, you've set the rules. Now you're at this incredibly contentious moment. You've thrown it over to schools, to principals and boards of trustees, and said, sorry, you have to deal with all of the dissent, no matter what your decision is. Any suggestion that throughout COVID there has been any abdication of responsibility, I absolutely reject. I get our COVID numbers every day. I think about what we can do to protect people from COVID every day. And that's why when it came to a question like, what do we do with our kids in schools? We said, whatever you recommend is what we will adopt. The recommendation was that yes, continue to uh, strongly encourage masks in schools. But for some schools, they often will be managing tricky different situations with their class body. This enables them, if they choose to, to put a flat requirement or to have more nuance if they choose to. And deal with all I the scorn that comes from their decisions. I have trust and faith in our schools, in our school institutions, in our boards of trustees and school management to therefore roll out the advice that we have provided to them. I have trust in them to do that. It's, and that is allowing them to take leadership as well. The nurse shortage is so bad that on the weekend more than 20 Polytech students in Dunedin had to go in and pull shifts in the hospital. Are you comfortable with that? We, and this is in a time where we have some of the greatest numbers in terms of uh, uh, training for our nurses as well. And of course, keep in mind, uh, since we've been in government, we've been focused on lifting those nurses and we've got over three and a half thousand more nurses uh, operating since we There's came still in. a big shortage if you're getting Polytech students to go to hospital. Well actually we want another two thousand more so even more than that issue we have at the moment and our health workforce is doing an incredible job in hard times mm. one of the compounding factors alongside the fact we need more nurses so we've got existing vacancies is that our health workforce, just like the rest of us, is getting sick. And right. so we are at a particularly acute period. We also have a significant plan, which is underway, to continue to increase our nursing workforce. But it's that dual issue, uh, Jack, of trying to train and attract, because yes, we'll bring them in from overseas, but we want our own nursing workforce too. Well, they're certainly working in Dunedin. Well, of, um, course they're, of course, all I'm doing is acknowledging it is a tough period, yeah. but we are very focused on growing those numbers. Will you reconsider that decision around your migration settings and put migrant nurses on the immediate fast track to residency? Yeah, so again, this is where I come back to the issue that, um, well, firstly, I've done some comparison, looked at some of the other countries because we want to make sure we're competitive. Uh, and our, our track is very transparent and clear. Come and be a nurse and you become a resident. Uh, it's so, better in other countries, though, undoubtedly. Well, no, I would argue against so, so actually. How many, how many nurses point, have applied to come here? Oh, look, I would want to go and get some of our latest numbers because we've flipped from one system but to surely a new we system. we want to do everything I we can to bring them in. Yeah, but, it, but actually one of the issues, I think, more than the residency, because I get a bit of anecdata and feedback from nurses considering New Zealand, for them it's clear that they'll become a resident if they, if they come and nurse here. Some of the issue is about their retraining and the cost of that. So we're looking at some of those issues, which I think might be a bigger factor than necessarily the fact that we ask them 
to come and stay as a nurse on their pathway so to residency. just to be 100 per cent clear, at the moment, no plans to Not at this that. stage, but as I've said, but as I've said, if there is evidence to suggest that, that that is somehow a deterrent, but I haven't seen evidence of that so far, then we keep an open mind. But I think some of the other issues around training do need addressing, and we're looking at that. I want to ask you a, a last couple of questions about the big picture. So you've been Prime Minister for almost five years. Yes. You've faced your share of challenges uh, in that time. But as well as the pandemic, there have been policy challenges at times. Mm. KiwiBuild was a failure when compared to your initial promises. The Polytech merger is a disaster in its current status. Despite the billions you've poured in, the Mental Health Foundation has been highly critical of your response in mental health. Kids Can says child poverty is the worst they've ever seen. When you compare your policy aspirations with the results your government has achieved, what have you learned? Do you know what? I would not ever change the fact that we have always throughout been highly aspirational, that we have always focused on how we can make New Zealand better and setting out a vision for what that should look like, you will still hear me talk about New Zealand as a place that should be free of child poverty. Absolutely, because anything less, in my mind, anything less demonstrates that we don't believe that things can and need to improve. Absolutely, an A for, if a, an, an a for aspiration, an E for if execution. I may, if I may, then. What you're asking me, essentially, is to shy away from aspiration, set your targets lower, uh, you know, set out ambition that is lesser, because then perhaps your scorecard at the end may say, well, you achieved it because you set out to do nothing. I would rather keep that ambition, and if I may on each, you know, for instance, on child poverty, 66,000 children have been lifted out of poverty by this government. Is there more to do? Absolutely. On housing. No government has built as many state houses as we have since the 1970s. In fact, we're responsible now for 10% of our state housing. 10%. And you know, how's the state are, housing list? Again, yes. And again, had we built at that rate uh, since uh, the last government, we actually would have almost met the state housing list that we have right now. The so is, that I, I, know, I know you can dispute the characterisation, but the truth is these are not your political opponents making criticisms. These are people who work in the mental health sector, who work in the and child poverty sector. Again, and, and clearly, if you had achieved what you'd aspired to achieve, these facts wouldn't be in dispute. But again, you're setting out that any aspiration that we should have should be in three-year cycles. I disagree with that too. New Zealand's problem as a nation has been that our political aspiration has been in electoral cycles. We will not solve intransigent problems of our time unless we are willing to think in the long term. Now, does that mean that you can build a new primary mental health system in three years and fix what is a significant gap in our health system. You can't, but we have started. We now have tens of thousands of sessions for New Zealanders accessed through primary care and mental health that did not exist before. And now we need to move through the continuum of care and start dealing with the acute issues as well. But we will only grow at that tail end unless we start doing the preventative work, be it in housing, be it in poverty or be it in mental it's health. Very interesting comment regarding political cycles. I know we've got a wrap, so my last <laughs> question then, when will you decide if you will stand for another term? I've already said I have no plans to go anywhere. I thought I had you on that. <laughs> Thank, Thank you very you. much. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please call it or my. These are our main platforms. You can email us or find us on Twitter or Facebook. Up next... The pollster who's worked for some of the biggest names in British and Australian politics. What lessons are there from Scott Morrison's loss that could influence next year's New Zealand election? Kia ora, welcome back. Here's a question for you. Are you left wing or right wing? Or do you not quite fit those labels anymore? Around the world, liberal democracies are experiencing a significant demographic shift. And Dr Mike Turner is watching it play out in real time. As a pollster and strategist, Turner has worked for the Labour and Conservative parties in the UK. And he's just finished the election campaign as the pollster for Scott Morrison's Liberals in Australia. I began by asking him about the Aussie result. 
It certainly felt like it was uh, one of the first post-material elections in Australia. Um, this new teal force um, for the coalition sort of doubled the threat and doubled the loss um, for the government, um, meant that they had to fight on two fronts. And it was an unusual thing for Australian politics where um, there were you know, new types of candidate coming through with a different type of agenda than we've seen in politics in Australia before, less focused on kind of economic issues and you know, material things about how to make ends meet for, for voters mm -hmm. and more focused on post-material things like you know, a little bit like climate change but also integrity and equality and so forth. Talk to us a bit more about that because the teal phenomenon is incredibly interesting. Who are the voters most likely to be attracted to a teal candidate? Yeah, well, they are certainly the professional class. So um, they work in open plan offices and not on kind of the shop floor of a factory, what have you. Um, they are um, people who have been to university um, and they tend to live in metropolitan urban areas. Mm. They're wealthy by virtue of their profession and they own assets. And um, they're probably what um, Rob Henderson would call people who hold luxury beliefs. You know, these are the things that um, are nice to have uh, and prioritise, but they're not necessarily kind of, you know, the raw day-to-day -day, uh, issues that affect many people in Australia. Right, so what are the issues that they prioritise? Yeah, so, so it would be, you know, what's going on in Canberra and rules and process. It will be things around a um, federal integrity commission. It will be things like, um, you know, going harder and faster and, and moving swifter on climate change and so forth, it will be these issues, really. When it comes to the demographic skews, mm. were, were voters who are more attracted to teal candidates more likely to be women? Um, in this instance, possibly because of the candidates themselves. Uh, this was also an unusual election because that teal movement effectively selected candidate by audition. Mm. They, um, you know, they advertised in the newspaper. Mm. Um, they selected people of a certain profile. If you look at the teal candidates that stood uh, and won, mm. they're all of a particular demographic and they all, you know, come from similar backgrounds, the McKinsey types, very well spoken, um, pr very well educated. Um, and, you know, they were an attractive prospect certainly for for um, female voters in those electorates. Is the phenomenon unique to Australia? Uh, it is uh, new to Australia. Um, it's certainly um, not unique in the sense that it could happen anywhere. Um, I feel that the electoral system in New Zealand uh, will prevent so quite the insurgency mm. uh, that Australia has seen because it's a majoritarian system. Mm. They only need to win just over 50% of the vote in those specific electorates to win. So you could focus all their resources down to just you know, a handful of electorates as they did. But it's certainly, you know, New Zealand's not immune uh, and places like the United Kingdom and, and the US are already experiencing similar sort of phenomena. Yeah, I want to ask about the dynamics in the United Kingdom. And we should say you have uh, been working for one of the candidates to replace Boris Johnson. So there is only so much you can say on this Correct. front. But how do you see the contest to replace Boris Johnson playing out? Yeah, well, it's certainly been a tough battle so far. I mean, we've gone uh, and out and been trying to convince the most Machiavellian electorate uh, in, in probably on earth, you know, that is Conservative Party, party members. Um, we never know uh, quite know how they're going to behave. Uh, but now it's going to change a gear. Mm. It's now focused on the 180,000 or so uh, Conservative Party members and what their needs are. And, and that will mean that the tone of the debate changes and it becomes focused a little bit more on how someone might govern mm. um, and, and, and you know, what sort of Conservative Party leader they'd like to see. So they will have a, they've got a marathon um, mm. tour now of 14 or so hustings around the country, around the entire country. And um, you know, these are going to be testing times for the two candidates that are left. You polled on behalf of the campaign of the former UK Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn, but also on behalf of uh, Liberal leader Scott Morrison, who I suppose is a retail politician compared to Corbyn's almost ultimate conviction politician. Mm -hmm. What did those contrasting experiences tell you about what voters want? Yeah, well, actually, I feel I have the benefit of kind of working across the political spectrum um, in terms of my analysis in being able to diagnose what it is that, that really drives and motivates voters. Mm. You know, working on kind of both sides of politics has allowed me to really understand what motivates people towards the left-hand side of the political spectrum as well as the 
right, but you'd also kind of boil it down to policy. You know, really, the key difference between the 2017 mm. manifesto for uh, Jeremy Corbyn in 2019 was that 2017 one was balanced and reasonable by comparison. The 2019 one was you know, totally, you know, uh, over the top. And there wasn't that discipline and rigour. Now, discipline in campaigns is critical. And, uh, you know, the analysis that the research insights and the polling can give you can help campaigns be disciplined. Are those terms left and right appropriate for politics in yeah. liberal democracies? Possibly not now, actually. Yeah, I think there's a lot of evidence now to suggest that we're, we... Uh, Globalisation, the changing nature of work, technology, these new institutions called universities and, and you know, media and so forth are really changing the way that people vote. Um, and it's in majoritarian systems like Australia and the US yeah. and the UK, they're struggling under those. In New Zealand, possibly better able to cope with those, you know, coalition governments are more normal here. Um, but uh, it's certainly gradually changing the way that people vote. Is, sure. it, is it too crude for me to say that, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, or traditionally even, mm. working class people and working class jobs were more inclined to vote for what we might term left parties, mm -hmm. whereas the professional classes were more likely to vote for parties on the right. But perhaps that we've seen a shift there, that people who are more educated, working in office-type jobs, mm -hmm. uh, who earn higher salaries, are more likely to vote for left parties, whereas working-class people are increasingly voting for right or centre-right parties? No, that's an excellent piece of analysis. For sure, the, there has been a shift in the way that, that voters now behave. You know, we're seeing, you know, university types from working-class backgrounds, mm. they go to university, they get a good job in the city, and now they will, you know, traditionally they might have voted Conservative. Um, actually, now they're potentially voting on the left-hand side of politics. What we're seeing is a movement away from the economy and economic issues being the key defining factor about how people vote and moving towards social issues. And Boris Johnson's 2019 Conservative majority yeah. effectively completed that cycle in the UK, that transition away from Thatcher's you know, economic agenda, right. which you know, was the coalition of voters that formed the, the Conservative majority, to a more social, patriotic um, side of the Conservative Party. Um, and, and that forms the new coalition government in uh, coalition of Conservative voters. A little stat for you, there's possibly never been greater support among Conservative voters for nationalisation of key industries like the railways and what have yeah, you, right? which amazing. is unthinkable in yeah. the 80s. But um, that's the nature of the, the electoral coalition that Conservatives have now. Why do social issues matter so much to voters, do you think? I think as we become better off uh, and we live longer, you know, I think the honest answer is, is those material things matter less to, um, you know, our life's ambitions and what have you. So, right. so we're moving up Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if we like, towards you know, self-actualization a little bit more and what we want and our drives and purpose in life. And, you know, I, I think that the material things in life are, um, you know, more ubiquitous. And so, therefore, it's less of a dividing factor. It's like a, a rising tide has lifted all boats to a certain extent, which doesn't mean that there aren't people living in poverty or in, you know, are deprived in an economic sense. However the general standard of living has increased enough that these social issues are more of a factor. Correct. Does it mean for identity crises for parties? Yes. I think if you're a party that defines yourself as the good economic managers of the economy and of people's incomes, mm. then you might need to be able to take a look at yourself to understand you know, what is the new coalition of voters that you're going to be mm. uh, speaking to in the future. It's not to say that that, that is not important. Mm. It's just that these other post-material issues are rising up the issue agenda for voters and in some cases may trumpet. So we need to have on the centre-right of politics if they want to be able to kind of continue to form majority governments and appeal to those voters as well. Mm. Is there a party that stands out to you in any liberal democracy that has perhaps adapted to this change better than any other? Yeah, certainly um, I would say Cameron's Conservatives, mm. you know, from 2010 to when he left office in 2016, 
immediately sought out to do that and was able to deliver against all the odds uh, the type of kind of uh, majority that might be sustainable in kind of the long run in 10 to 15 years time but look I think at the moment the honest answer is is that there are these parties on, on the left and right because mm. it certainly affects you know Labour parties and Conservative and Liberal parties um, equally as much as, as the extremes of politics become bigger um, they, they are taking a large uh, a good look at themselves really about you know, what are they for what's their purpose and mm. reassessing what do you think about the Republicans in the US well I, I certainly think that the long-term trend for the Republicans is that they need to understand where the future electoral coalition will lie, will lie because you know these issues um, these values for voters are growing mm. you know, steadily at glacial pace so in 20 30 years time they might not actually have the headroom for a majority couldn't you also make an argument though that they had perhaps adapted to a world in which social issues were of greater importance to voters much faster than their Democrat rivals yeah but I would also argue that it was about character of leadership I mean Donald Trump's electoral win in 2016 was right. as much about the weakness of his opponent as it was about the, what his message was do you worry for democracies uh, to some degree I think there's a cynicism uh, among voters mm. which is probably quite rightly felt um, this transactional nature of politics where you know politicians and political parties are you know vote for us to get this particular party over the line th mm. this particular policy over the line otherwise you're not going to achieve it I, I think it's leading to a deep mistrust of uh, politicians but I would also caution against that I don't think there's ever really been a time where we really deeply fell in love with our politicians um, or at least for more than a fleeting second all right well, it's a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Thank you. That's Dr Mike Turner. After the break on Q&A, the outgoing leader of the world's oldest Māori organisation reflects on her achievements and her regrets. We've had moments where we've been listened to, uh, but lots of moments when we haven't. Kia ora te welcome back. Māori are special. Te Tiriti or Waitangi guarantees Māori special status, and that status still isn't being recognised. That's the message from Pru Kapua, the outgoing president of the Māori Women's Welfare League, Te Rōpū Wahine Māori Tōkui Te Ora. After eight years in charge, she sat down with me, and we reflected on the organisation's legacy. The Māori Women's Welfare League was launched by Dame Finna Cooper in 1951, and in more than seven decades as an organisation, Pru Kapua is the longest-serving president. It's good to have an end. It's good to have uh, new people um, coming into the role. It's always hard to leave something that you feel quite passionate about. Um, but I think um, the time's right. I think it's uh, good to introduce people who will bring great skills um, into the role. Um, but there's always unfinished business and there are always things you wish you'd kind of just completed um, before you left, but hey, how that's the way it goes. What would be top of the list? <clears throat> I, think, uh, I think probably some of the government agencies that um, we would have liked to have had a slightly more formalised relationship. Corrections is one. I think there's a lot of work um, we could do to hopefully help some of our wahine um, in prison, coming out of prison, the transition, perhaps to put pressure on to um, stop women mm. being incarcerated for crimes that uh, nobody should be incarcerated for. I think it's 70 years since the, mm. since the Rōpū mm -hmm. was founded. Why is it still relevant today? I think it's probably still relevant because of the um, collective will of gathering um, wahine Māori together. Uh, that's what worked in 1951. It was the fact that there's a voice. It's um, we're all still part of our of our hapu, of our iwi, and involved with issues within our own community. But we come to, together. Mm. as a group of women and I think um, that the issues, the issues 
unfortunately probably haven't changed in 70 years. The issues were about whānau, the issues were about our tamariki, um, and we're still having those issues today. Justice, education, they were all part of our uh, constitution back then, and they still are now. What progress have you seen? Um, within this period of time, I guess, some of the things we've achieved have been formalising those arrangements. So we have a MOU with the police, um, and that's about them recognising that they need the community to address some of the issues mm. uh, that they're facing. And uh, so we've had that in place. We have a strategic partnership with Oranga Tamariki. It was a little hard to come by because at one stage Oranga Tam Tamariki believed they should only have strategic partnerships with iwi. So we've had to convince them that a Māori organisation um, is able to achieve certain things. It's not an either or. The Rōpū, or group, has worked in myriad different areas over the decades, advocating for better health, education and wellbeing outcomes for Māori. In 2011, before Prukapua took over, it was the subject of a High Court case after Destiny Church co-founder Hannah Tamaki challenged for the leadership. Tamaki was found to have stacked the league with her supporters and their votes were suspended. But the controversy isn't forgotten. At times, in, in recent years, there has been some dissent and division within the Rōpū. Has that, has that been damaging for the league? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I think that when you have a membership organisation of around 3,000 people, you will get uh, people who have different agendas or have see things from a different perspective. I think uh, we have, as a league, had different issues that have occurred over the years um, that have brought us to the forefront. I think even when I uh, came into this role, people um, said, oh, so did you run against Hannah Tamaki? <laughs> and that had happened years earlier. Um, so, you know, the kind of... Uh, way that we are portrayed um, is by virtue of these glitches yeah. that we have um, and people don't see uh, all of the other stuff that's happening. The, the most important thing is that people can still be doing the work they do in their communities. Um, it always worried me <clears throat> that, uh, that having that public attention on those areas um, undermine the work that, that many of our women were doing in the communities and I think that's a damage. Um, it's something though, as a Māori organisation, you, you get irrespective. There are so many wahine who struggle and who are thought of as less than their male counterparts due to being a Māori and during to be, due to be a wahine. This needs to stop and the Crown needs to realise the implications in recent months, the Waitangi Tribunal has considered the mana wahine kaupapa. It's more than 25 years since the League first sought to bring the claim. We have to be really clear from our perspective, from uh, Te Rupu Wahine Māori Tukui Te Ora, the perspective was about crown action. Mm -hmm. It was about the fact that um, at the time, um, Dame Mirazazi had been uh, the person that both the League and uh, Iwi at the time wanted um, to go on to the uh, Te Hukaimoana, onto the Treaty of Waitangi Fisheries Commission. Um, <clears throat> the Minister of Fisheries at the time uh, decided against that in the best interests of uh, his view of how Māori would react to a woman being in that role. And, uh, and that was what precipitated the claim from our point of view. I think the fact that we've waited all this time has meant that we've continued to go through uh, a period of time where the questions about why our voice isn't heard on the many numbers of groups that are established, that you know we've had governments whose um, only 
dealings with Māori have been with particular organisations all the way from the New Zealand Māori Council uh, through to um, iwi chairs, iwi leaders forums and so on. So the, the fact that we've existed since 1951 um, hasn't meant that the government has always put us at the forefront when they've looked to consult or seek advice. And I think uh, waiting all this time mm. for that to be heard is, has been pretty frustrating. We've had moments where we've been listened to, uh, but lots of moments when we haven't. Prue Kapua is someone who thinks deeply about the legal and constitutional status of Māori. In a legal career spanning more than three decades, she has keenly focused on treaty issues, land law and resource management. I wondered if I could ask you a little bit about your own background. Uh, where are you from? Nōrotorua, ko waiau, ko te uri o Ngāti Whakaui me Ngāti Kahungungu. So I, I grew up in Rotorua. Uh, my birth mother was from Kahungungu. Um, my parents uh, in Rotorua, my father was um, Te Arawa Ngāti Whakaui. Um, and uh, that's where I was born and grew up and went to school. Because you, you were whāngai, you were adopted. Uh, I was adopted, yes. Yeah. Mm. I, w I wondered how uh, growing up with adopted parents, um, a, a, a Pākehā mother and a Māori father, how that affected your identity as a Māori person? Um, I think probably growing up in Rotorua, which is an area, um, a significant area <laughs> for, uh, for Māori and uh, with a, a surname like Tamate Kapua, um, you know, there wasn't ever really an issue about your yeah. identity. Um, my mother, though, was um, involved in, uh, when I was at school at Rutura Girls with the, um, what is now called Kapahaka, what we then called Māori Club at school and, and uh, was involved uh, with that as well. So, I mean, it's a sign of an era, really, in a, in a sense. You know, they, um, I have a, a brother and sister where all three of us were adopted and, um, you know, Māori children were relatively easily adopted. I'm not going to say in which years uh, those were, but um, were relatively easily uh, able to be placed with families because, um, uh, you know, there were quite a few of us at that time. Today, the status of Māori and Aotearoa is not universally agreed upon. The ACT Party wants a referendum on the interpretation of the Treaty of Waitangi. Meanwhile, the renaissance of te reo Māori and New Zealand history being taught in schools coincides with an intense debate over the role of Māori co-governance. What do you think is the status of Māori in Aotearoa today? Um, I, don't, I don't think that as a country we've properly, properly recognised the status of Māori. And I think that has been an oversight um, throughout. We, I think unless you understand that Māori are tangata whenua, unless you understand that we have te tiriti or waitangi as a foundational document, you tend, or people tend to uh, compartmentalise Māori into a minority group. Um, that sits with a whole other, a whole, whole lot of other minority groups. So, yep, I think we've had, we have recognition by virtue of aspects around the real, um, you know, those things that happened in the 80s, the movements that have occurred that have resulted um, in what looks like progress. But it's pretty slow progress when we're still today having the same kinds of arguments about um, uh, issues about why you don't have on uh, a water utility governance body uh, Māori represented when it's all about te tiriti, it's all about ownership 
of, of to use a parkour term, it's probably not uh, not how we would look at it from our point of view, but the fact of the relationship that we have with water, why would you not mm. embrace Māori representation? And the fact that we still have the platform provided for people to challenge that um, means that we, you know, we do have a society that hasn't grown enough to recognise um, that we are not a minority, that we are not one of a number of groups, that we have a particular status by virtue of being mana whenua. What might recognition of that status look like? Um, I, um, you know, I think that we uh, could have done and, and have looked at, and certainly as the League we endorsed um, a bill that was aimed at um, recognising in our Constitution Act that Māori are the first peoples uh, of this country. And that was to do it to align with the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Um, I kind of think if you put that into, into a, a statute, then some people will get that. Um, but I think the way that, that we have to do it really is to get into uh, acknowledging that we have to do these things for ourselves. We have to, we have to determine. Um, when we talk about rangatiratanga, we have to talk about self-determination. We have to acknowledge that for it to occur, it has to be through us, on our terms. It doesn't get dictated by the Crown. It doesn't get dictated by um, appointed groups or anointed groups that get together to decide how that would be carried out. And I mean, we can do that if we start looking, and it probably goes a little bit back to the Manawahine claim as well, if we start looking at who we appoint and put on these uh, different bodies and are part of the decision making, and that it's not done by the Crown. This September, Te Ropu Wahine Māori Tokuiti Ora will mark its 71st anniversary, making it the longest running Māori organisation in existence. Will there come a day when the Welfare League will no longer be necessary? <laughs> um, uh, no, I don't think there will come a day of that because even uh, if we can affect um, many of the changes and we can look at um, having community group iwi hapu involvement in the decision making, in the allocation of resources and everything else, I think we will still have the need to come together collectively. I think the, the, I think the benefit you get out of that is being able to work through uh, issues, matters, solutions that can be done as a whole because everybody brings um, their own perspectives. There isn't just a Māori perspective. Uh, there's uh, something that becomes a Māori solution brought together by a number of perspectives that are part of that collective um, decision-making. That is Prue Kapua. She's just finished up as the president of the Māori Women's Welfare League, Te Ropu Wahine Māori Tokuiti Ora. Stay with us. q and back after the break. Kia ora. Hey, we're almost done for this week, but before we go, a quick reminder. Every week, we publish Q&A as a podcast. So as well as the telly show that you're watching right now, <laughs> we publish it as a podcast. We put it up without ads, and you can find it by searching NZQ&A on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Kua mutu. That is Q&A for this week. From the Q&A team, thanks for watching. And nā mihi kia koutou i ngā karere. Thanks for your feedback. Hei tērā wiki. We'll see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.